Today's reading is from Luke 3, 1 through 18. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even the tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering if, in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? God, we're, we're grateful to be before you this morning um, to offer ourselves, our time, our bodies, our thoughts, our emotions, everything to you. I'm reminded by the song that we sang that we're coming back to the heart of worship and that even being here is an act of worship and, and listening is an act of worship and obedience is an act of worship. And so we thank you. We thank you for Matthew who will be bringing your word this morning. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak your words through him, that our hearts would be receptive and that we would have um, just a desire um, to be changed by you and to be transformed because we love you, God, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, good morning. Uh, just a, a quick show of hands. Um, if you're, if Kansas City, anybody? Chiefs, a few folks, one, I see three, four, five, twelve, perfect, I got a whole row, I appreciate that. Uh, San Francisco, anybody, anybody, one, all right, we've got the, uh, the, the six folks from California over there, perfect, great, uh, good blessings on all of you, um, I, uh, I am continuing to lick my wounds as, as a uh, longtime Dallas Cowboys fan, 
Um, so yeah, no, I'll receive, I'll receive the booze. It, it just, it, it emboldens me. Uh, no, I do hope that you have a, a fun time watching, watching the, uh, the game and, and celebrating with, with folks. The production team did want me to tell you that rather than have this screen over here, it was misbehaving, it was flickering, and so they're just giving it a timeout. So we just turn that one off. You're going to have to look over here. Um, my name is Matthew. I serve as a, uh, one of the pastors here at Christ City Church and really excited um, to be here with you this morning. We, um, we're continuing a series that we started a few weeks ago uh, entitled Learning to Live, where we're walking together as a congregation through some of the marks or characteristics that we uh, uh, want to participate in as followers of Jesus that we believe will shape us um, as followers. Um, one of the things that we want to um, touch on um, this morning is God's story. Uh, last week, Andrea shared a little bit about um, the ways that your story, the ways that um, your, your personal narrative, where you've come from, the, um, the, the challenges, the successes, the celebrations, the um, hard times, the low times, like how all of that has shaped you and has brought you to this moment. And this morning what we want to do is talk a little bit about God's story and about how your story and God's story intersect. So what I would like to do this morning, I want to, I want to define a term. I, I want to tell some stories. Surprise, if you don't know me, I love telling stories. I want to tell some stories. Um, and then I also, I want, to, I want to extend an invitation to you. Um, and the stories that I want to tell or the things that I want to talk about, they, they may be things that you have heard before or heard in your past before, but uh, perhaps maybe you might hear them with a, a little different, um, maybe a different accent. Uh, if it was. I'm originally from, from Texas, and sometimes that accent comes out, sometimes it doesn't. I will talk to my mom uh, later this afternoon. If you really want to know what I sounded like as a kid growing up, then just ear hustle into my conversation with Dion, because it will come out. And there's a way, you know, I could, I could say to my kids, you need to listen uh, to your mother, and there's a certain accent that I might say that. When I call Dion this afternoon, I'm going to call her mama. Because there's a different, you know, you could say the same word, but you hear it with a different accent, and it create and there's another... There's a nuance and an intonation that's there. And so what I want to do this morning is, is offer up something that maybe you're familiar with, but, but to accent it a little and nuance it and, and hopefully expand some of this. And the term that I want to define is actually the term gospel. It's, it's, it, 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 the thing is, words can lose their meanings. And, and a word like gospel, it, we become familiar with the concepts or the ideas or even the story. And then we begin to sort of use these words in these shorthanded or abbreviated ways. And uh, then things that were once really rich in meaning or rich in experience and carry a depth of texture, over time, these things can begin to cease to mean what we think that they mean. We can sort of channel our, our, any, uh, our inner um, uh, princess bride. And, uh, you know, so our Inigo Montoya, I, I do not think that word means what you think that it means, despite the fact that we would continue to say it and say it. And gospel is one of the more common words that you hear often in churches. It's, it's tossed around. It's used in popular culture. You say something that someone believes passionately, and they're like, that is the gospel truth. And you're like, yes, I don't know what that means to you, but that's right. And, it, it, but, but, and we can lose the meaning of it. Because of a familiarity or because of even misuse or abbreviated use, it loses its weight. And so the word may not mean what we think that it means. Um, so what I hope to do is, is, is tell you a gospel story, but to tell it in a way that's a, that's a, that's a full story, that's a whole story, that's, a, that's an open-ended and ever-expanding story. And the invitation for all of us is to join into the story, to locate yourself there, and to live the story, and to continue to also likewise tell the story. 
And I want to say, I don't want to assume too much just in this moment. You may be here and you haven't ever heard the word gospel, or maybe you've heard it, but you're not quite sure. You don't have a clear sense of what it means. Or you may even be a little sort of confused about why we would even be talking about this. First, what I want to say is I want to say welcome to you. And I want to honor the courage and the chance that you took to step into this place. Thank you for coming and joining. And whoever it is that you came with, thank you to you for for inviting them. It's no small thing to show up. And then secondly, I, I hope to answer some questions um, around our faith that some of us may have and um, ways that this story can prompt some other questions. Um, the passage that we read um, out of uh, Luke chapter 3, just a bit of the background of the story because I want to reference this. Um, it's a story about um, uh, John the Baptist. This John is Jesus' cousin. There's a previous story about John's uh, family members, Elizabeth and um, Zechariah, and John is born miraculously, similar to how Jesus is born. Um, John's uh, parents, their old priestly parents, and uh, their story, the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah, runs a bit of a parallel of uh, Joseph and Mary's story. uh, Elizabeth and Mary are pregnant together. They are... um, parents uh, to children that are being born in a miraculous way. John was a, was a prophet. He grew up and he became a prophet of God, and he called people to return to true faith. Uh, and he was recognized um, as a prophet. In Luke 3, it begins, during the high priesthood of Annas and, uh, Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. This, this phrase, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, the, the, the word of God came. This is actually a word that shows up throughout the Old Testament. The same language is used throughout the Hebrew Bible, and, and it's used whenever a prophet receives a new word from God. Uh, just a few examples in 1 Kings 12, it would say, but this word of God came to Shemaiah, the prophet. First Chronicles 17, but that night the word of God came to Nathan. Nathan was a prophet that spoke to David. Jeremiah 2, the word of the Lord came to me. Jeremiah talking about himself. Ezekiel, similarly, in chapter 21, the word of the Lord came to me. Over and over, God spoke to the people through prophets. Over and over, God spoke to the people through prophets. Over and over, God spoke to the people through prophets. And then silence. Generations, hundreds of years of silence. And then John's prophecy was coming following these generations of silence. Just a quick sidebar for a minute. If you are in this place and you're you're wrestling with God's silence, let this part of the gospel story remind you that God's silence doesn't mean God is absent. If you're in a season wherein you are experiencing the silence of God, a place where in the ways of God uh, and the ways that he may have once spoken uh, to you, that those words seem so far off, the ways that you once conversed with a God, that those seem uh, now impotent words, I I want to say to you that God is near, that he's here, that he's with you, and that his silence isn't his absence, that he's working even in the silence. And then God broke his silence. He gave a word to John. 
God's words. They, they, they weren't new, uh, and they were consistent with God's previous words in the Hebrew Bible. And what John had to say was a reminder of the things that God had said from previous prophets. And his words were this, that salvation is coming, but that repentance is required, and that renewal and restoration was our destination. That these were the things that John was saying as he was standing in the baptismal waters as a prophet that, that had received a new word from the Lord. It was really an old word that said, salvation is coming, it's on the way. That repentance, though, is required. You have, to, you have to change your direction. You have to correct your course. You have to change your mind about some things. But that our destination was renewal and restoration for all of us. John is identified as the forerunner. This is the same message that Jesus would, he was echoing the same message that Jesus would say. That salvation is at hand, that rescue, that redemption, that new life, that healing was being afforded. But repentance was required. A turning from selfward living and laying aside lesser identities and lesser satisfactions and laying a hold of the life that's offered through the faith in the one who made us. John is recognized as a forerunner to Jesus. And just as a king has a, has a courier that runs ahead of the king and announces to the villages, the king is coming, prepare the way, so too is John the Baptist announcing the coming of a king. Verse 3 of uh, Luke 3, he, John, went into all the country around Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill made low, every crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all the people will see God's salvation. Luke connects John, the gospel writer Luke, he connects John back to the prophets of old and forward to the king to come, Jesus. And he does this through this passage of Isaiah 40. The passage is, is it's, it's, a, it's a passage of life to come. It speaks of, of it gives us this imagery of, of straight paths, of filled in valleys, of, of flattened mountains, of smooth roads. And some of us, we, we may sort of look at that imagery and be a bit confused, because you may think, I, I, like, I, I like mountains. I'd like to go to a mountain. This, like skiing is nice. Like you sort of when you think of it, you're like, I don't know why I would... You know, I don't want the Rockies to look like West Texas. That would not be like the kingdom to come for me. And if you're from West Texas, I, you know, I'm not saying anything about that. But just maybe you like mountains. Um, but what is, being, um, what is being given is an imagery of renewal. And the geographies mentioned, they were, they were often used to indicate uh, places of brokenness or fear or treachery. If we were to write Isaiah 40 today, we, we might uh, say that all, all of the dark alleys will become well-lit boulevards, that blighted properties will become love-filled homes and businesses, that abandoned playgrounds will be filled with children and their parents. Um, in his book, Mountains Beyond Mountains, uh, Tracy Kidder um, tells a story of Dr. Paul Farmer, who, um, who is uh, the founder of Partners in Health. And the book's title, Mountains Beyond Mountains, it's borrowed from a Haitian proverb that says, beyond mountains there are more mountains, and beyond those mountains are yet more mountains. And what it means is that beyond this struggle, there's more struggle. And beyond that struggle is more struggle too. There's more pain and there's more tears up ahead. And so what Isaiah is saying here is that there will be a day when the mountains will be made low, when beyond this bitterness isn't more bitterness, but it's something else. 
or valleys. One, one of the most famous psalms that is often read in our culture and context at funerals, the 23rd psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul, guides me along right paths for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I'll fear nor evil. For you're with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This, this psalm, it places us in the valley, a low place, a, a hard place, a place that can actually feel like a tomb as you look up at the land rising above you. John is reminding us that there's coming a day when the valleys of life, will they'll be filled in. You won't be low anymore. The crooked paths uh, that are straight and crooked paths were dangerous paths because around the bends that you couldn't see, uh, well, there laid wait robbers and bandits. And to walk a crooked path is to put one's life at hazard. The prophets soothe us with these images of a future wherein robbers and thieves are no longer a part of the journey, where crooked and violent streets are lined with peace, where life is sacred and violence is exiled. John's message is Isaiah's message, and that message is that salvation is coming and included in this resultant renewal that is just on the horizon, but what's required is repentance. John is, uh, he's often called John the, the Baptist, um, and this isn't like some, <laughs> because of some denominational affiliation or anything, they sort of the Baptist ripped his name off, I'm not sure how he'd feel about that, but that's, um, but that's just sort of where it's, where it's come from. He's actually called John the Baptizer, because that's what he was doing, um, in much the same way that um, in that culture and context you may say James the coppersmith or Henry the carpenter. John was baptizing people. And this is where we find John and what we find him doing in Luke 3. He's, he's baptizing people. The, the, the word that's used there, we've mentioned this before, is actually taken from the garment industry of the day. It's, it's, it's the description of, of the dyeing of fabric. It's, it's where you take fabric, cloth, that uh, would be cream color or white because of the, the, uh, the linens and the fabrics that's used, where it's dunked or dipped into colored dye, whatever color of your choice, so that the fabric might take on the color of the dye. It's, it's, it's baptized into the dye. And so when, when it, this phrase gets absorbed into the religious context, baptism, the, the dunking or dipping into water, was the sign that a person had changed from moving in one direction of life to the other. And this outward sign of baptism of what had taken place in the internal interiors of their soul. And so they were dipped as a way to say, I am taking on the color of this new faith that I have suggested. In this context, though, John is baptizing Jewish folks. In, in, in the Jewish religious context, baptism was always for non-Jews. They were baptized into the Jewish faith. And John is saying, no, I'm going to baptize you. Those that, uh, I, I'm baptizing not just those that um, historically or culturally were outside of the Jewish heritage. He's saying, no, I'm, I'm, I'm taking this symbol, this powerful sign of renewal, and I'm going to do it for Jewish folks. For Jews, it reminded them of the exodus when Israel fled Egypt and emerged from the parted Red Sea and coming out of the other side as a free, renewed, redeemed people. The imagery, it's a, it's a powerful and poignant and, and, and it's pregnant with meaning because the Jewish people had lived through the exodus. They saw themselves as already rescued, as already chosen by God, as already part of some divine ancestry. They didn't believe themselves in need of a baptism or the conversion that it represented. 
Jewish people believed that they were saved by virtue of their uh, descendancy from Abraham, which constituted them as a chosen people. And in the response to that, John says, no, that's not it. He actually calls them to repent and place their faith in the God of their ancestors rather than placing their faith in their ancestry. The thing is, they were, they were only believing part of the redemptive story of God. They were, they were only believing part of the good news, part of, of the gospel. They heartily believed that things were broken, that there were mountains and valleys and crooked, crook-filled roads. They also b- believed the prophets of old that told them that a day was coming when things would be made right. But rather than believing that they were part of the brokenness, not simply victims of the brokenness, they overlooked the means by which one gets from here to there. You see, they weren't just travelers on a crooked road. They were also robbers lying in wait for weary travelers. You see, I'm not just a traveler on a crooked road, but I too am a robber laying in wait for weary travelers. I'm a part of the problem. And this belief is it's not just relegated to first century Judaism, but it's also a part of our culture and context here in this city too. In a city where so many come to the city to participate in changing the world as they understand change. And this belief that the problem is, is out there, outside of me, or those like me, the, the belief that I'm only ever part of the solution, well, it has a lot of resonance with what John may say. The point of, of neglect for John's audience, and, and frankly for us, is that we only believe part of the story. And I think this is probably where I would like to begin telling a a fuller story. I think as a corrective, so much of of our storytelling here at Christ City is to be storytellers of a fuller, more robust, truer story of what God is doing and how he's working and what that means for us. One of the ways that we often talk about this larger story that God is is doing, we talk about it using a phrase called the four-part gospel, the four-part larger movements of what God is doing in the world. The first part is uh, creation. Believing that God created the world from nothing. That from nothing God created and all that we see in this room and in the world that it was first birthed in the mind of the creator. (laughs) On the ride here this morning, we were driving up and uh, my youngest daughter, Annalise, she's eight. And um, it was at this point that she, on the seven-minute drive from my house up here, she wanted to talk about where, where uh, children come from, where babies come from, to, 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 which, to which I thought, well, and I honestly, I know that's very, uh, I said, well, what would your mama tell you? I mean, that's, that's sort of bailed on it. She said, she, she said, no, she said, well, what Nathan told me, her older brother, which is always, this will be really good, he said, well, it came from a spark and a kiss. That's right, me and your mama had some sparks and our kisses. <laughs> but then she said, but I've always wondered where were the babies before they were born, before they got into their mama's stomachs. She's like, were they just, like, where are they? And I said, well, I, I think they were in the mind of God. <laughs> she goes, you're probably right, Daddy. <laughs> I said, yes, baby. Who do you want to win the Super Bowl, Annalise? And quickly sort of change the. <laughs> but that in creation, everything that we see, that it was first birthed in the mind of God. 
And after all of the creating, when the divine artist put his brush down, he said that everything was good, that everything was as it was intended and should be. That all of humanity, that all of humanity is created in the image of God. Men, women, unborn, elderly, wealthy, those experiencing poverty, oppressed and oppressor, that everyone is created in the image of God in, in, in everything in creation. The grass, the soil, the rivers, the mountains, and the creatures and all that call this place home, that they are created by the Lord of the universe, though not necessarily bearing his image, they bear his fingerprints, and as such are due respect and well care. But that's not the only part of the story, that there was a fall. And this is where sin, the, the, the Christian's word for brokenness and rebellion and death, enters the story. All that God created, and especially humanity, the chief among creation, though God made good and in his image, it's now marred and distorted and perverted by the sin and death and isolation that was ushered into the world by the enemy of God and by humanity's rebellion against God. And that brokenness, that, that fallenness, it's thoroughgoing. It has tainted every life and every sphere of life. Sin and the fall, it affects who I am. It affects my thoughts and my appetites and my desires. It, it, it affects even my own bodies. It affects my cells. My mind will rage against itself. Um, because of, for the past uh, several weeks, uh, I'll just share this with you for a minute. Um, just walk with me. So for the past several weeks, um, I've been going through a treatment. Uh, I, um, because of my ancestry, and part of my ancestors were from Scotland and Ireland, I was blessed with this amazing red beard and also this amazing fair skin. And so when I'm in the sun, my skin is damaged. And it had gotten damaged to the point where if I didn't do something, cancer was on the horizon for me. So for the past several weeks, I got this tube of cream. That's chemotherapy lotion. I've been rubbing it on my head. So I got these red spots. Some of y'all are looking right now. I'm still pretty, though. Don't, don't, don't get them mixed up. Because sin doesn't just affect our souls, but it can also affect our cells. The effects of sin are thoroughgoing. I'm okay. I got great doctors. I'm fine. It affects relationships with people and with other people and other peoples among themselves. It affects our systems and structures. Systems and structures that were meant to foster flourishing now contribute to oppression. So that we see this in political systems and education systems and economic systems and justice systems all tainted and marred by sin. It affects creation so that even aspects of the created order that they no longer work together in the ways that God initially intended. I don't have to often to convince people of the fall. We, we know it all too well. But we didn't stop there. The story doesn't end there. That God wasn't content to leave his people or the world in the state of, of insurrection and collapse and slavery to the sin that now seems to rule the cosmos, but that redemption was part of the story. God has always been a creator who pursues his creation, who woos them, who calls them back to himself and to the harmony-laden life that existed in the beginning. And in order to restore order, God sent his son, Sent Jesus Christ. Jesus takes on the enemy, takes on sin, takes on death. And this is the point of the cross. 
And yet Jesus is not overcome by sin, isn't overcome by death, rather upends the story in the resurrection. A redemption, our redemption, our freedom, our, uh, our exodus is made possible because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and the resurrection from the grave. But the story doesn't stop at redemption either. The fourth movement of the story, just as the effects of the fall and of sin were deep and dramatic, even more so is the work of Christ on the cross. The cross has cosmic implications, and it has to because sin had cosmic implications. Though Jesus defeated sin and the enemy, the final movement, the full fruition of Jesus' work is yet to come. And creation, fall, redemption, and then the renewal ahead. The Bible describes a new city, the city of God, the city wherein all things are renewed and restored and returned as they were intended. A city wherein we're no longer frustrated by the ways that sin and brokenness frustrate and oppress and violate. A city wherein the isms of the world of racism or sexism or ageism or tribalism, those things are exiled. A city wherein flourishing and life and well-being are the hallmarks of creation, not the exceptions to the rule of the world. A city wherein the full, where we are fully rejoined in relationship with the creator. And this is the trajectory of history. In the redemptive arc of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, and renewal. And this is the story. This is the the fuller story. This is what we mean when we say the gospel story, a story that starts with creation and ends at renewal, a story that has a conflict point in the fall but has its apex in the person and work of Jesus. This is the good news. That Jesus saves, he saves humanity, and he's about renewing the world. But the trouble is when we only tell part of the story, or we only believe part of the story. And this was John's accusation to the Jewish crowd on the banks of the river that he was baptizing in. I think sometimes the, the folks that were there, the folks that were with John, that they, that they believed just part of the story. They believed uh, the second and fourth movements of the story. The fall and renewal. I believe that they could uh, get to renewal, but that they didn't have to go by the way of Jesus. For the, for the Jewish folks that were gathered there on the banks listening to John, they, they believed that there was a fall, but by ancestry, that they rested on their genealogy, that they could get to renewal. And John says, no, that's not true. And this is why he was baptizing the Jews. He was reminded them that what rescues is faith, not family. He was calling them to repent of their trust in heritage and return again to trust in the creator of that heritage that they so prized. I think in D.C., so many are working and engaged in the work of justice or of social justice or the common good or well-being. And this desire, it's a good and godly one. It's one that God has deposited into our souls. It reflects our longing for the day of restoration that God has wired us for. Just as humanity is wired and built for a relationship with God, so too has he deposited in us a longing uh, for the city to come. And we want to get to renewal, too. We want to see uh, the injustice and the inequality and the oppression, and we wage against that, rightfully so. We groan for the restoration that the gospel story tells us is ahead. And we long to see mountains made low and valleys filled up and crooked paths made straight. But the temptation for us is to think that we can get there apart from Jesus. That if we just protest enough, 
that perhaps justice will be found if we just develop the right policies or elect the right leaders, uh, if we just secure the right economic engines, then perhaps we can find our way back to Eden or forward to the gleaming city of God. But John says no. In order to pass from the fall to renewal, we have to go by way of the cross and the grave and through the waters of repentance which John is standing in. It's the, it's the quote that often gets tossed around that everybody wants a revolution, but nobody wants to do the dishes. Otherwise, our temptation is to believe only half the story. But others of us, we, we believe a different half of the story, perhaps. We believe movements two and three. We, we, we start the story with the fall, and then it ends with Jesus. And in so doing, we neglect God's creation and the goodness and the perfection that was bound up in the first part of the story in his creation of all things good. And we truncate the story too soon, uh, leaving out the denouement of the epic tale when all things are made right. And when this occurs, our faith becomes too privatized, too, too self-focused, and it loses sight of the cosmic implications of this gospel good news. There can, this can be a way that we tell half of the story, and it becomes so partial that it becomes inadequate and insufficient to actually qualify as good news at all. It's like... You show up 30 minutes into the movie, leave 30 minutes late, and then try and write a movie review. You haven't seen the movie. Not only is it unsatisfying, but it's unfaithful. A couple of stories about this. Um, I have a friend, uh, Perry. Perry is a political journalist. And um, I remember one time after, after preaching, he sort of catches me, and, and he says, okay, listen, I've got to go immediately. I hear you're preaching Jesus, but I just got to know, like, how does this uh, intersect my faith? I'm, I'm in a field where I'm even wondering, is this a, a place that a, that a faithful man of God can occupy? Like, how does this connect with my journalism on Monday? I got to know, and you've got seven minutes uh, because I'm on to the next thing. And I'm like, perfect, challenge accepted. I said, listen, Perry, the thing is in the beginning... Communication with God was clear, and it was truthful, and it was beautiful. And we knew the truth about ourselves. We knew the truth about God. We knew the truth about others. But lies and sin and death, th th those things that came into the world and they made a mess of the world, so much so now that it can be hard, one, to tell the truth, and two, to know what is true and right and beautiful at all. I said, yet Christ came to save humanity and usher in the kingdom of God, a kingdom wherein God rules and reigns in every life and every sphere of life, including those spheres that, is, that encompass your work as a political journalist. I said, but there's a renewal coming, a day wherein things that are confusing become clear, a day when things that are murky to us now are made plain. And it's not the ultimate role of a journalist to make complex and complicated things understandable and to expose the things that are hidden and harmful. I asked him, I said, is it not the role of a journalist to make complex things understandable and to expose things that are hidden and harmful and the job to tell the truth? So I said, Perry, to the degree that you're doing that, the degree to which you are bringing clarity and not confusion, the degree that you, that's the degree to which you are pointing us as Christians to the day ahead when all things are made new the ways that you're making things plain and clear. 
And, and this, this articulation, it helps Perry and his co-workers. Not only does it tell a fuller story, a fuller gospel story, but it helps Perry understand and locate his story in the life of what God is doing more broadly. It helps his co-workers. It helps him know how to share his faith in ways that is frankly more robust and inviting and allows his colleagues to know where they are in God's story and what's lacking in their own progression in the story. And what's far less helpful is just telling half the story to Perry. I have a friend, uh, Jacqueline, um, spending some time with her this past week. She's a minister at Paramount Baptist Church in Southeast D.C., and she's helped me as much as anyone see the dangers of telling half the gospel story. Jacqueline's shared part of her story here at our church as well, stories wherein she, um, as a younger woman, experienced homelessness and ways that um, during that time she heard a truncated gospel where she said folks would just come to me and they would say, you know, the world has fallen, sin's in the world, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, but Jesus. And she said, I, I, I knew I, they did, I, I was an expert in the fallen nature of the world. I was an expert in my own fallenness. I didn't need the story to start there. What I needed was to be reminded that in the beginning, God made all things good, that I was fearfully and wonderfully made. And I needed to be told that in the future, that there was a heavenly father who was building a place that had many rooms and that in the renewed city of God, everybody had a home. And I miss those parts of the story. You see, when we tell just half the story, it's hard for us to locate ourselves there. And it may not be the f most faithful rendering of the gospel. Creation, fall, redemption, renewal. This is the fuller story. And so what should we do? John chastises the crowd. He calls them to repent of telling and believing half the story. And he points them to a fuller and more robust story that calls them to faith in the author of the story. He invites them to locate themselves in that story. And that was the point of the baptism, the, to signify the belief in, in, in this creating, redeeming, renewing work of God. And so in verse 10 of chapter 3, the crowd asks, all right, what should we do? Verse 10, what should we do then, the crowd asks. And John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. And even the tax collectors, they came to be baptized. And they're like, teacher, what about us? What should we do? And he says to them, verse 13, don't collect any more than you're required, he told them. And then the soldiers, they asked him, well, what about us? Do, do, do we have a place in the kingdom? And he said, yeah, don't, don't, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely and be content with your pay. Upon hearing the gospel, the good news of Jesus, of God's saving activity in the world, the crowd responds, what should we do? And John's reply is, live in a manner in keeping with repentance. Verse 8, he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. He says to the crowd, if you've got two coats, give one away. If you've got more food than you need, you should share. John is saying, live in light of this full story. Live in a manner that tells the gospel story. Live in ways that point to the renewal to come. And in the kingdom, people have the clothes that they need. In the kingdom, people have the food that they need. So in between now and then, because of God's great mercy shown to us, let us embody this coming reality. Let us point people to the day when mountains are low and valleys are raised. You have two coats, give one away. The tax collector, he says, be fair. 
The, collect, the tax collectors that are there, they're Jews who are oppressed, uh, but yet oppress others through their position. So he's saying, don't oppress. To the soldiers that are there, verse 14, he says, be just. The, the soldiers, by the way, they most certainly would have been Gentile Roman soldiers, again, cluing us into the ever-expanding nature of the kingdom of God. All are invited into the story that God is doing. Now, all of them, he says, live in ways that provide an echo to the kingdom to come. To the tax collector and the soldier, he's saying, you can do right in your vocations. And to the others, and the other thing that this story does is it helps us clarify for us the ways that our vocations participate in the echo making of God's redemptive plans. A couple of other stories that some of you may know. A friend of mine, uh, Dave Beer, Dave was a part of our church for a long time. He and his wife, Severine, they just celebrated 12 year, their 12-year anniversary, so if you know them, you can sort of hit them up on social media. Um, Dave, he serves in his role of working to ensure that the economic engines in developing countries, that they're fair, and that, a, that, a, that the monies that are contributed for the common good through taxes or through shared vehicles, that, that they go to benefit the people, and they don't just go to line the pockets of the corrupt. And in this way, he's pointing to the day when all things are made new and all things are made right and true and good. And he needs to be reminded of that, especially on days when it feels like all he's doing is looking at Excel spreadsheets as an economist. But this story, this fuller story of what it means to follow Jesus and how our day-to-day -day work points to the day to come, it gives us language. Um, I don't see him sitting back there, but I'm going to track him down later. Keith Moore. Keith serves as uh, one of the maintenance specialists here at Minor Elementary. Day in and day out. What he does is he reminds the children that come into this place that they matter. Because an environment in which they learn communicates that they are valuable and that they are important. And so he cleans, he repairs, he's a stable, strong black male presence in this school. And his, can, his work connects to the day when all things are made new and true and right and bears witness to the truth and the work of Jesus. And so in increasing measure, as followers of Jesus, let us provide a sign and a foretaste and an attractive echo to the day that's soon coming when Jesus makes all things new and right again and whole again and healthy again. It ties to this broader story. These actions are in keeping. Now, these actions, by the way, they're not things that we're doing so that we can earn salvation. They are fruit in keeping with repentance. They are the, the harbingers of the renewal that's to come. They are the works that result from a life and faith and a belief in the God of this gospel story. They result from salvation that was bought by Christ, not earned by our own hands. In Luke 3, John is standing in the water, and he's calling people to repent. To repent of misbelieving that your rescue can be found in yourself. For the Jews, it was their ancestry. For you, maybe it's your own hard work. And he called them to repent of believing in half the story that God was writing. And he called them to hear again the fullest good news story and to place their belief in that creation, fall, redemption, renewal. And then the invitation was to live in light of one's faith in this full gospel story. 
And with humility, I want to do the same to you. If you have believed part of the gospel and have thought that you can save yourself or this world apart from Jesus, I invite you to repent of that misbelief and to place your faith in Christ in this fuller story that he's writing. If you've believed part of the gospel that still has you and your personal faith at the center, I invite you to believe a stronger, fuller, longer, cosmic gospel that doesn't start with the fall and end with the cross, but starts in the garden and ends in a city and has its defining moment in an empty tomb. And if you have the right story, to place your faith in that. And so the invitation is for you and for me to believe in the God of creation, the God who is active in overcoming the fall through his son, Jesus, and to believe in the God who will renew all things. This larger redemptive narrative is the good news of which we speak. It's what we mean when we say gospel. The narrative is the story of God's work to redeem people and restore the world, to see his kingdom take up rule in every life and every sphere of life. And this narrative is still unfolding and has a place for you in its midst. Let me pray for us. We invite your spirit into this place, Lord, to, to move and to minister, to comfort and to convict, to remind us of things that we've forgotten, to, and to restore things that have been eroded. Spirit, I pray that you would, um, that you would minister, God. As we've looked at John's story and the Gospel of Luke in chapter 3, God, I pray that by your word and by your spirit that you would stir in us. That you would help us locate our own story in this larger story. The ways that you are active in, in redeeming us and renewing us. And the parts of that that you long for us to steward for the sake of the world. Ways that the stewardship of this faith that we have is to point to the day ahead when you do renew all things. The ways that our lives, individually and collectively, are meant to be a sign and a foretaste, a, a, a prophetic reminder, a stirring of the godly imagination of what's to come. God, I pray that you would uh, that you would forgive us for the ways that, that either in our minds or in our souls or in our living, we've behaved in such a way that said there's only just part of the story. God, I pray that we would say yes to the fuller story. In the ways that we believe and the ways that we live. Spirit, comfort us in this moment. Bring us to godly repentance so we may say yes to the full story and the full life that you are writing with our lives and that you're inviting us into. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.